years ago, I took a field trip to Hannibal, Missouri. And it was for my senior literature class, uh, since we were studying Mark Twain at the time. Excuse me, I'm talking about Samuel Langhorn Clemens, not Mark Twain. Uh, I use people's real names because I'm an adult. So, author of such works as The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Clemens's hometown quickly hit the map thanks to the success of his uh, works. Today, the town draws in literary fans not just from the corners of America, but internationally as well. There's a cave in Hannibal, now referred to creatively Hold on. as, excuse me? Uh, this is this is what's called inside baseball here. You said you went on this field trip when now? Uh, that was my senior year of high school. Fantastic. And who was your literature teacher at that point? Uh, a lady named Patty Shockley. Love her to death. She's a fantastic lady. Uh, Patty, kind of feel like you never took me on any field trips. Kind of feel like I just sat in class and watched a lot of stuff about, you know, the Great Gatsby and some various stuff. Kind of feel like you ripped me off there a little bit. Uh, anyway, there's a cave in Hannibal, now creatively referred to as Mark Twain Cave. I don't know why. Uh, because there's only a man named Samuel Langhorn Clemens born there. In Clemens' stories, uh, the cave made a few adapted appearances under the filthy pseudonym McDougal's Cave. In the book The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, uh, there's a scene where the young lovers of the book go to McDougal's Cave to tell ghost stories in a strip of the cave that resembles two large benches facing one another. So, if you walk through the cave today, you might get the same ghost story that I did. And the story goes that when Mark Twain was a young boy, he and his friends heard a rumor about something sinister in the cave. Like all young boys and girls do, they played hooky and they skirted off to the cave, which I would assume was just named the old cave at the time. I don't I don't know. Uh, the oldest boy led them down the maze-like corridors of the cave until he found the spot. A large copper tube was found suspended above the ground. The oldest boy carefully unscrewed the container and a strong smell washed over the room. He wouldn't let anyone get a closer look. They all turned their lanterns off and began to tell spooky stories, uh, which I assume were something like the day all the bread ran out, because I don't know what's scarier than just like being alive in the 1800s. As the story nears its climax, the boys would yank the sheet off of their still glowing lanterns, and with a splash, the oldest boy had lifted something out of the container, the blonde head of a dead girl floating in alcohol. <laughs> what? The children were all horrified, and fled the cave in every which direction. Some children were so scared that in their panic, they fled far into the depths of the cave and never found their way back out. This started with Mark Twain! I assumed there was a steamboat adventure on the horizon! Nathan, this is a typical ghost story. You act like you've never been a child before. <laughs> to this day. I was a child! I watched Are You Afraid of the Dark! They threw non-dairy creamer into a fire to make spooky lights! <laughs> to this day, the 16-year-old tour guide told me, the ghost of that poor girl still wanders the cave. <sighs> Isn't that fun? Fuck, no, it's not fun! <laughs> anyway, but enough about all that. The day is April 1st, 1805, and Joseph Nash McDowell was born in Lexington, Kentucky, to a Revolutionary War veteran Major John McDowell and Lucy Nash Legrand. His father was promoted from captain to major after crossing the Delaware with George Washington. Like, like in the painting? Yeah, like the painting. Was he in the painting? Okay, well, he's not in the painting. Uh, not only because well, that's... what the fuck was he doing? Well, Nathan, not only because that's not, like, a real-time portrait. <laughs> so you're telling me that... You're telling me that that didn't... Like, Washington wasn't just, like, astride with the flag in his hand going across the Delaware? No, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Uh, also, there's, like, 50 boats in that portrait, so, like, he could have been way in the back, for all I know. He would later fight in many campaigns against the Native Americans, as you did, uh, and would even serve in the first state legislature of Kentucky. His grandfather was also an accomplished veteran, serving in the Battle of Kings Mountain in 1780. 
Don't I know about know. that one. Okay, no. I was going to ask if you did, because I don't. No, I, even I, I did, I was in, what, in what year? This was 1780. Yeah, no. No, as far as I know, that was just that, that time didn't exist. But Joseph didn't follow in their footsteps, though. Joseph was more interested in his uncle, Dr. Ephraim McDowell. Okay. Who was famous at the time for removing an enormous tumor from a woman's ovaries. Oh! Without the aid of anesthesia or antibiotics. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. You say without the aid, like that was making it easier on him. Uh, I feel like the now all I'm imagining is just a woman screaming for 12 straight hours is, is what I have, and he admired that. So good, good to know. When the woman agreed to do the procedure, he set to work trying to drain the tumor down to a manageable size. When it was finally removed, it was still over 22 pounds. <laughs> No, no, okay, keep going. The woman recovered in McDowell's home after the procedure, while an angry mob waited outside to murder McDowell if the woman didn't survive. <laughs> oh, shit, who wanted to be a doctor back then? Good after Lord. three weeks, she came out, rode home on her own horse, and lived another 32 years. <laughs> okay, so this, so, and what year was this? This was, uh, I would say this is prior to 1812. Prior to 18- Okay, so so all things considered, that dude's a pretty good doctor. He No, he's a very good doctor, and you're going to find uh, Joseph kind of follows in that step as well. Okay. So the success of this operation made him famous, even going so far as to be named the father of abdominal surgery. In 1812, that's a cool title, right? I mean, it's not a bad title. If you're a doctor, you get called the king of anything, I'll take it. In 1812, he operated on James K. Polk, who would go on to be president of the United States. Stop! Of course he would! It's my son's favorite freaking president. It's one of three presidents he can name. He's two! Are you kidding me? He operated on James K. Polk? Yes. Okay, I'm Quote, in. The gentleman had suffered for years from symptoms of vesicle calculus, otherwise known as bladder stones. In 1812, when in his 17th year, he was induced to consult Dr. McDowell. He carried the stone home with him, not in his bladder, but in his pocket, to show to his friends and neighbors. Uh, I see what they did there. That was that was a that was an 18th century turn of turn of phrase. I was like clickbait for the 18th century. All right, all right. Yeah, see, what, my favorite part of that though is like I get the appeal of like when your dad's been working on the car all day and like he comes out of the garage with an acorn and it's like here's what was causing all that rattling, but. Frankly, it's a lot more fucking weird when you come back from Dr. McDowell and you're like, look, honey, this was, this is what was making all that dick hurt. I mean, you're saying that to a man that's had a vasectomy, and I asked them if I could keep any of it, and they said no. Nathan, which part did you think you could keep? I didn't know what parts were involved. (laughs) Ephraim was obviously not loved by all. I did mention the murderous mob. Uh, There were those that thought his experiments and procedures were butchery. Now, you say experiments. Now, this is a doctor. Uh-huh. Now, when I say the word doctor, the word experiment doesn't come to mind unless I'm talking about Frankenstein. So, did he do anything else? He was called a hack, a sadist, and one who gloried in cutting open the belly of a woman. I like that guy. I like that last one who's, like, sitting outside of a surgeon's office, and as people are carrying out people who are, like, happier and healthier, he's just screaming, like, he's doing it because he likes it! <laughs> I mean, you want someone that enjoys their job. Fair. You do. You always want that. Slave masters would tell their slaves horror stories about what McDowell would do if he ever caught them. And, like, I can't find an example of one of those stories, but, like, they're already living in chains. How much worse does it get? Thank you! I was about to say, what is the horror story you tell a slave? (laughs) So, So that's his rock star, right, Joseph? Like, growing up, that's his idol. His dad's a major who fought with George Washington. His uncle is the father of abdominal surgery, which can you imagine those two crazy kids getting together? That's a... I mean, they'll fuck you up and they'll stitch you up. I'm... That's a pretty good combo. (laughs) 
So I'm assuming that he started his own country and was the father of thorax surgery? So Joseph was a tall and lanky, wild-haired looking man. So like picture Count Olaf from one of those unfortunate events adaptations. But I mean, take it with a grain of salt, though. I will tell you that like every other white guy from the 1800s looks like Count Olaf. Okay, good to know, because I, I had I, they all look the same to me. Educated at Transylvania University in Lux- No, no, uh, stop. Uh, what, wait, stop. That's no, a normal we're school. not. No, you're not. You're not. No, because 20 minutes ago or two minutes ago, whatever the actual number is, I said something about Dr. Frankenstein, and you just said the words Transylvania University like it wasn't a big deal. In Lexington, Kentucky. I don't know how long he studied there, but as we will find out later, it is a lot shorter than you would expect. Good. He was a very talented and top-notch student, despite some quirks. Cool. So he's Dr. House for the 1780s. <laughs> McDowell was a Calvinist and a passionate secessionist. He believed strongly in the rights of Southern states and in the institution of slavery. Cool. 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 Nothing wrong there. While well known for being generous in his treatment of the poor and the sick, he was also known for his hatred of immigrants, colored people, and Catholics. Moving on. <laughs> he would lecture on those subjects, quote, at street corners to anyone who would listen. Okay, so I'm I'm sorry. I'm a I'm not I'm not a doctor. I've not ever been a doctor. I don't aspire to be a doctor. I'm just a guy with a job. And if you told me, hey, do you want to take some time out of your day to talk on the street corner? I would say no. So I'm assuming he's got a full time job, and then he's just talking on the street corner about how bad Catholics suck. Yes, that is that is exactly what Mr. McDowell was like. Well, good for him. <clears throat> I'm sorry. By now, he's Dr. McDowell. Dr. McDowell. Yes. Let's. Make sure words matter. I do want to. I, I do want to give him a little bit of credit, though. To my knowledge, he never owned a slave. G- okay, good for him. He That's... strongly believed in it, but like, I guess he just never had the time to get into it. You know? Uh, yeah. That's starting to be less and less. Yeah, it's like the worst case scenario. Like, you didn't even have the balls to own a slave, but you loved it. After graduating, the timeline gets really fuzzy. Uh, but this is a rough, des- rough, rough estimate, loosely stitched together by what I have. So he studies. <clears throat> In Transylvania, and after he graduates, he goes to he goes to Chillicothe, Ohio, where he has a medical practice. Chillicothe. Chillicothe. I have a degree. I don't know words. Talking is my major, and I don't know words. <clears throat> cool. He has a medical practice for two years there, and then he goes to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he has a medical practice. I'm not sure for how long. It's a Queen City. Queen City. Queen City. Then he moves to Miami. University Whoa. of Miami. <laughs> That's a bit of a jump, isn't it? So he goes from he goes from Ohio to Ohio, and then he goes to, like, Will Smithtown. Welcome to Miami? Yes. In 1829, he serves as an adjunct professor at University of Miami. He was suspended after his first course of lectures. <laughs> he did not make it long at all. I wish I knew why. <laughs> What you what you know he's suspended? You don't know why? No, they don't tell me why. They just say he's suspended. I have to assume it's because he broke from lecture and was like, "Can we talk about black people?" <laughs> oh my god, no! A six-year stint after that, he has a six-year stint from 1829 to 1835, where he gives lectures in an amphitheater that he built on his own property. I couldn't figure out where he built the amphitheater, but since it's like right after he was fired from University of Miami, I want to hope it's like right across the street. <laughs> yeah, no, he just set up. So when you say amphitheater, he just set up a soapbox and he's just yelling. I built he's, my own school. We're called Fuck Miami. Oh, dear Lord, no. <laughs> uh, and then he goes back to Cincinnati to teach at Cincinnati Medical College uh, yeah. from 1835 to 1839. Cool. He did a lecturing tour through the South uh, from late 1839. Uh, and it's just throughout the year. 
Uh, and after the tour was done, he returns to Cincinnati and he packs his bag for St. Louis. What was, what, wait, 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 wait. He returned? Why did he return to Cincinnati to pack his bags for St. Louis? That seems like an unnecessary step. Well, clearly he left some of his clothes in Cincinnati. And he was like, I, you, you have a favorite shirt that you would not leave behind in Cincinnati. <laughs> I wouldn't leave anything behind in Cincinnati. Maybe he left one of his Calvin, Calvin posters. We love you, Cincinnati. So March 1839, he moves to St. Louis. When McDowell arrived in St. Louis, he and four other physicians joined the medical department of the Kemper College as teachers. Never heard of Kemper College? Have not. Lived here all my life. Never heard of it. The lectures they delivered were actually the first medical lectures delivered west of the Mississippi River. Okay, now we need to pause here for a second because I feel like as someone that has grown up in St. Louis basically my entire life, kind of by definition, um, I feel like everything we do gets labeled best X west of the Mississippi. I feel like that's kind of a cop out. Like, is every were we just the first thing west of the Mississippi? And we so are every, literally on the west edge of the Mississippi. I kind of feel like they're just using that as a goddamn cop out. <laughs> McDowell was such a prominent part of it all that the medical department came to be known as McDowell's College. Due to financial constraints, the Kemper College was forced to close in 1845. Explains probably, why I haven't heard of it. And the medical department was basically sold to the University of Missouri. Okay, I've heard of that. That's a thing. So that's when McDowell and the rest of the physicians constructed a new building in St. Louis. Between 1848 and 1850, McDowell oversaw the construction of an octagonal fortress, which over the next 10 years, you heard me right, which over the next 10 years would fully gain its independence as the Missouri Medical College. Stop. When you say gain its independence, from what? From uh, University of Missouri. Okay, which was a very not, small from, not from like the country. <laughs> Because you said octagonal <laughs> fortress, and the Pentagon has five sides, so I'm thinking that he just saw the Pentagon and said, fuck you, I can make a more-sided building, and seceded. Because you said he's an avid secessionist. Oh yeah, and he's, he, I imagine he built another amphitheater on top of the octagon fortress, and he's like, fuck you, I'm doing it again! <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> fuck. Okay, proceed. It was designed with two large Greek revival wings and was flanked by an octagonal tower. Why so many goddamn octagons? The college included a dissecting room, a chemical room, a lecture hall, a laboratory, and a dispensary where the poor were treated for free. He also opened a museum that contained more than 3,000 specimens of birds and animals from North America. Now, that was McDowell's personal collection. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so I was, like, getting kind of excited. I was like, all right, this is a tormented figure. He's doing some good things. And then you just said the word personal collection. So how many birds? 3,000 specimens. Why in the name of God did this man have 3,000 dead birds? Now, bear in mind, he did a lot of traveling. Like, he went from Cincinnati to Florida just as, like, a spring fling. You say that? I've been to South Dakota. I have zero birds. Now, did you did that in a car, I'm guessing. I, you know, that's a lot of assumptions on your part, but sure. <laughs> now, if you're on, like, horseback, I think you gotta stop a lot more. And, and like, kill a lot more birds? Moving on. <laughs> there were also minerals, fossils, and antiquities, too. All of which would be viewed for a 25-cent admission. Nope, nope, nope. Antiquities. All right, so what antiquities? I wish I could tell you. Okay, good. Believe me, they don't come back up. Okay, I, I mean, I'm trusting the antiquities don't come back up, but when you're in the United States and it's 1780 and you say the word antiquities, the country's existed for, like, 25 years. So, like, that's the equivalent of me saying Duran Duran's, like, hungry like the wolf is an antiquity, and I just don't feel like that's accurate. <laughs> the clergy and medical men were admitted for free. Okay. Quote from Washington University. Nearly all faculty members were part-time educators. 
Professors received fees for the courses they taught and maintained busy private practices. They were not expected to produce original research. Students were admitted to medical schools without rigorous preparation and often without college degrees. Because if there's one thing I want for my doctor, it's a lack of rigorous education and no college degree. Instruction was based almost entirely on lectures. Laboratory or bedside learning was rare. As a person who played World of Warcraft throughout a bunch of lectures, that's not a good sign. Can I just bring up, I don't know what bedside learning means. I'm assuming bedside learning means you stand there while he lets a guy die and you just go, that's how you don't do that. <laughs> Typically, you would have like a six or seven month stint at medical school and then you're just free to practice. Okay, so I, again, I'm not a doctor, but any doctors who are listening right now, that's not about right. Six, seven months and you're good. Uh-huh, yeah. My girlfriend's getting ready to go to medical school as soon as we graduate in May, and I can't wait for it to be done by the next August. God, I am super glad I married into that family. Good work. Nathan, let's talk about grave digging. Well, yeah, cool. Nothing like segues. In order to understand human anatomy, you usually need a corpse to rifle around in. I've seen Young Frankenstein. I know how this works. Given that this was the time without anesthesia... You would have a hard time doing anatomy lectures with a living subject. I mean, you say that, but that one girl said that he could rip into her abdomen without any anesthesia, so... With McDowell in charge of the college, you were required to perform one dissection before you graduated. Which was within six to eight months. <laughs> I was about to say, I mean, I dissected a fetal pig in fifth grade, but I don't know if that counts. Unlike today, though, you couldn't exactly get a dead body. Today, people have to be donated to science after they die, but... Back then, the law didn't really go buddy-buddy with science. So in Missouri, it was legal to use hanged criminals as cadavers before they were buried. <laughs> this, this process, though, was extremely loaded with red tape for people like Dr. McDowell. Now, I mentioned the hanged criminals thing, and I found that that goes way back. Uh, this is from Forbes. In the early 16th and 17th century, dissection was basically a postmodern punishment for criminals. In 1789... A New York law was written allowing judges to add dissection to a criminal sentence. What the fuck? So could you add it in lieu of, like, going to jail? Like, you can dissect my corpse, but I'm not going to jail? Mr. Belafonte, in the sights of gods and man, I sentence you to death by hanging. And then they're gonna dissect you! <laughs> God damn. So, if you can't get a body quick and easy, what do you do? Uh, you pay a poor person to dig it up. That's yeah, what I know. Exactly. Yeah! Across the United States and Europe, a set of norms started popping up for how you dug up your corpses. <laughs> oh, God, that shouldn't be a sentence that exists. If you were wealthy, you would hire your local resurrection men. Now, Nathan, what do you think resurrection men do? Uh, I've played D&D. I know what necromancers are, and they are people that raise up people to fight Diablo for me. They were paid grave diggers. You got it. Okay. There was another hired service run by two guys named William Burke and William Hare. This is in Edinburgh, Scotland, though. Back in 1828, these two Irish guys had built up a deal with this doctor. No, 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 no. Bah, 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 uh -huh. bah. You said the word Edinburgh, and then you said the word two Irish guys. So uh -huh. did these two Irish guys immigrate to Scotland, or they are they Scottish? They did. They did immigrate. That is confusing to a person that doesn't know a lot about that geography. Go on. Now, see, they had set up this gig with a doctor where they would, uh, they would bring him corpses, and he would pay them. So funny thing, it turns out the bodies were getting, like, fresher and fresher every time, until eventually the doctor learned that Burke and Hare found it was way easier if you just killed the guys yourself and then wheeled them over to the doctor's place. Yep, 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 that seems like a good idea. Uh, but of course, things like that weren't for Missouri's medical schools. Uh, at the St. Louis Medical School and other colleges, it was more typical for a doctor to send his students off to do the dirty work and to return in the morning with uh, whoever they could dig up. 
But if you're at the Missouri Medical College, Nathan, Dr. McDowell wouldn't just tell you to go out and grab that body. He'd take you out to the cemetery, he would pick out the grave, and then he would help hoist that fucker out with you. Well, it's the thing they say about leaders. They're, they're doing it out there on the front lines with you. He's the honest man's body snatcher. He right? seems that way. So McDowell encouraged his students to discreetly refer to these outings as resurrectionist activities. Really? Really? That's his discreet? No, stop. His fucking discreet is to call body-grabbing resurrectionist activities? What more specific way could you refer to that activity? Name one. Um, thought so. Keep going. So if you're digging up bodies, you usually go for, like, a pauper's graveyard because it's so, so much easier. Fences are shorter, they can't afford guards, nobody will miss them when somebody, you know, gets around to noticing the big old hole. It is, however, never a guarantee that people won't notice. If you rob from a wealthier graveyard or you get caught pulling a young child or a pretty lady or something like that, that's when the public starts going apeshit. And that's how we get to uh, the riots. Okay. It's important before I go into this to mention that Dr. McDowell was somehow, and, and this is going to shock you later, was never caught in the act. <laughs> I mean, already the fact that his code word was resurrectionist activities makes it remarkable he was not caught in the act. In St. Louis... McDowell had a huge reputation as a grave robber. Not only did people blame him for upturned graves, but they would also start accusing the college of kidnapping people. It got so bad that people would often cross the street when passing it because they worried some hand would, like, reach out of the window and yank you in. Sounds good. The octa- quote, the octagonal tower had been fitted with Why an Why do they feel the need to mention octagonal every time? <laughs> had been fitted... With an unusual deck around which six cannons had been placed to defend the school against possible attacks. What the hell? Why is there an octagon-shaped fortress in the middle of St. Louis for dissecting bodies? He also kept the school stocked with muskets that students were told to use in case of an out-of-control mob. I can't. I can't. I, okay, fine. Whatever. I, on, I quit. On one occasion, as a crowd of 300 Germans began to gather in an area... Why does matter? Why is that relevant? Now, do you remember when I said McDowell hated immigrants? I do, but still! Actually, I'd forgotten it. It was put behind me in all the other bullshit he's done, but keep going. As a crowd of 300 Germans began to gather in an area out of reach by the cannons, McDowell opted to use his backup defense system. He then let loose his pet bear, Cinnamon, and allowed it to rush into the crowd. No. Uh-uh. No. Uh-uh. No, I'm not even reacting to that one. No. No, you're telling me the man had cannons for the octagonal fortress, he had muskets, and then his backup plan was a fucking bear! Quote, The mob scattered quickly, McDowell said. Well, yeah, there's a bear! And the bear returned unharmed to his lair in the college's basement. The animal lived there until its death of natural causes some years later. Sure it did! Fine! Whatever! The most interesting riot, though, starts with a young German girl. Of course it did, why not? Every good riot starts with a young German girl. I've always cool. said that. Cool. With McDowell treating her at her bedside, this girl died in her home of what McDowell called a strange, unstudied disease. So, that is that just 1800s code word for I don't fucking know? Boogie fever, probably. Cool. McDowell offered his condolences to the girl's parents, gathered up his tools and students, and left the grieving family. <laughs> so she died at her bedside. Yeah, correct. In her home. Yes. And he gathered up his tools. Right. And students? Yeah. Well, students were there because, like, he was, of course, lecturing to them, like, this is what a dying girl looks like. 
I'm going to poke her with this tool. She's not getting fixed. This looks bad, boys. Sounds good. And there was a chorus of harumph, harumphs. Harumph, harumph. Then McDowell came back to the home, grabbed the girl's body, and rushed back to the hospital. Well, (laughs) okay, let's just breeze over that. Word spread very quickly about the girl's disappearance, and before she was even... I would think so! She was robbed from her home! She's a little girl! There was someone else home! Before she was even dissected, a crowd of 400 Germans had formed, intent on storming the college and finding McDowell. I don't know what this has to do with a cave, and at this point I don't care. While McDowell was busy with his daily routines, he received a note from a passerby, warning him that the school would be attacked that night. Well, yeah, it would. You stole a corpse girl. And he re- Imagine reading that like, I can't imagine why. I've never done anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, you took a corpse out of a person's house. You shouldn't do that. As darkness drew over St. Louis and the mob marched towards Gratio Street, McDowell sprung into action. He told what little students were on staff that night to man the cannons and grab the muskets. And he took off into the now darkened halls of the college. You look like you want to say something. I, I don't even know anymore. I quit. I can't handle this. McDowell had just picked up the young girl's corpse as he heard the mob flooding into the college. Why did he pick it up? Slinging the dead girl over his shoulder, much like you do a bag of mulch, McDowell headed for the attic. Why is there an attic? As he went for the attic ladder, McDowell saw the ghost of his mother. Okay, what the f- No, stop it! I said, McDowell saw the ghost of his mother as he went for the attic. Knowing the attic wouldn't be safe, McDowell said that his mother guided him to the body storage room. (laughs) Really? McDowell threw the girl beneath a sheet-covered table and crawled beneath it himself. There, apparently his mother told him not to be afraid. I don't think a ghost has the right to give that advice to anybody. At this point, seems that way. Several immigrants burst into the room. Okay, okay, okay. Several immigrants burst into the room. That kind of sounds like something this motherfucker would have said. Let's rephrase that. People came in. (laughs) Sane, normal, rational human beings came in to attack this crazy motherfucker that was abducting child corpses. As McDowell laid next to the young girl whom he stole from her deathbed, he heeded the advice of his mom's ghost, and a man lifted up the sheet behind which he was hiding. So he heeded the advice of his mom's ghost and got caught. The man, mistaking McDowell for a corpse, then left the room. What does this motherfucker look like that that is a conceivable thing? On that night, McDowell said, I renounced Calvinism and became a spiritualist. Uh, no. Uh Uh-uh. No. No. Uh Uh-uh. Seeing his mother's ghost drove McDowell into a weird fascination with preserving people's bodies. The central column of the octagonal tower had hooked sections in it that were intended to hold the remains of McDowell's family members after their deaths. He told his kids that he wanted to be preserved in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. Which, like, that's a fun conversation you always have with your kid. We've been there. Mm Mm-hmm. We went there. We've been there. It was a family trip. That's a place we went. I threw up on the side of the car. You did? We went to this motherfucker's mausoleum? His signature is in that cave. In 1839, McDowell visited the city of Hannibal, Missouri, roughly 90 miles from St. Louis. In the town's recently discovered cave, now known as Mark Twain Cave, McDowell left behind his signature along one of the walls, signed J.N. McDowell, M.D., 1839. The same exact signature with the same date can be found in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. It wouldn't be the last time McDowell would visit Hannibal, though. Ten years later, he came back and bought the cave. Wait, you can buy caves? 
It was only discovered like 20 years prior, and I guess like the mayor will take any money. So like... Is that still an option? If it is, do you want to buy a cave? I kind of want a cave. McDowell had nearly 10 children. Very few of which... Wait, read that sentence. No, no. Read that sentence verbatim again. McDowell had nearly 10 children. No! Children are not something that are... You don't have nearly. You have one, you have two, you have ten. You don't have nearly anything. Well, let's let's uh, let's talk about a fact about the 20th century. Very few of them made it to adulthood. Cool, but that doesn't mean they weren't children. I mean, like, if it dies after, like, ten weeks, did you really have a kid? Mother- I'd say it's an almost. I'm gonna kind of, as someone that had a child prematurely, I'm gonna come across this table and strangle your ass. One of those unfortunate kids was Amanda McDowell. All of those kids were unfortunate. Let's not be, like, equivocal about that. She was born between the years of 1833 and 1836. We're not there sure. should not be that big a gap! We're not sure. I get this because I read the McDowell family census and gathered what years she was included and what years she wasn't. Um, even biographers aren't sure what year she was born. Then they're bad at their job! What I do know is how old she was when she died, which leads me to believe she must have been born in 1836. Amanda contracted pneumonia, a slow and excruciating illness that overwhelms your lungs with mucus until you eventually drown in your own fluids. Okay, curiosity, did anybody listening not know what pneumonia was? I mean, I was just making sure we understood that this is a long death. Yes, okay, the cool child died a long time, thank you, now I'm sad. In 1850, Amanda finally died to her illness. Now, I cannot begin to put myself in the headspace of losing a daughter. You can't! Um, But I do think I know what McDowell was thinking, and that is, I should put her in a big old container of alcohol and hang her from the ceiling of that cave I just bought. Just stop. No. No. Stop. Despite the amount of rumor and folklore surrounding that ghost story... Mm -mm. Dr. Joseph Nash McDowell no, did place his no, 14-year-old daughter's no, corpse not. into a large copper tube Absolutely full of alcohol not. and suspended it from the ceiling of his newly purchased that cave. That is not. No, 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 no. This was fun. This was delightful. No. He did not freaking Mr. Freeze his goddamn daughter. That was not a thing. That was a bad movie from the 90s, and Joel Schumacher almost murdered that franchise because of it, but he did not put her in a goddamn tube. At first... Nobody knew but McNowell. Yeah, because it didn't happen. That's not a real thing. He barred the only known entrance to the cave with a large iron gate. And in order to deter theft, quote, he made the key weigh more than one pound. No, no, this is not a D&D dungeon. No, no, no. I like the headspace of, if it's more than a pound, it's just too heavy. Nobody will use it. Also, if there was only one key, he had it. Why is this an issue? But you know... Do you want to know where, like, little kids go exploring in Hannibal in the 1800s? I want to know. Caves! I don't want to know any of that. I want to know why the motherfucker was allowed to put his daughter in a class tube full of booze! Do you know what a 15-year-old Mark Twain saw when he went into that cave in the no. 1800s? No. A little girl floating no. in a copper tube hanging from the ceiling! That was not an exact- That ghost story I opened up with. True. I seriously can't, I, I couldn't believe it, but that actually it's happened. True. No, uh-uh. Mm-mm. True. Find me. Give me an example. Because, again, as a person that has a, a, a degree from an accredited university in history, I would think they would have told me, hey, we used to put little girls in tubes of caves. Not we. Dr. McDowell did this. He was alone. Purely alone on this. McDowell chose the cave because it was a consistent temperature. 
and he was obsessed with preservation, at least this is what I've gathered, he was obsessed with it because when he realized that his mother's ghost was still around, he became aware of where their bodies were and what they must have looked like, so he thought, oh god, if they're gonna be ghosts, like, I don't want them to get all sad that their body's gross, so he put her in alcohol, and, and made sure she stayed pretty, you know? Yeah, I do know, because I've seen the movie Batman and Robin. The one I'm of aware the- of how this works. Arnold Schwarzenegger puts you in a tube until he can find the cure for your rare disease. The one Alicia the- Silverstone was in that movie. She rode bikes. Chris O'Donnell was also in that movie. He was Robin. There were nipples on the bat suit. I've seen people in tubes. It doesn't make this make any more goddamn sense. The one part I cannot really confirm or deny is when they were lifting the girl out of the tube by her hair for ghost stories. Because, I mean, like, according to the ladies who wrote this guy's big old biography, the tube was, like, super sealed, hermetically sealed, to keep her preserved. And I I do think, though, that it had, like, a glass cover on it that the kids were looking at. The actual quote from Mr. Clemens says, In my time, the person who owned it, the cave, turned it into a mausoleum for his daughter, age 14. Put this poor child into a copper cylinder filled with alcohol, and and it was suspended in one of the dismal avenues of the cave. The specific chunk of the cave that he hung her from was off-limits when I took the tour, but I have seen pictures of it. If I'm led to believe them, there is a little cave drawing of her gaunt, drained face painted onto the wall. Because kids will be kids. Stop. Kids will be kids. Where is this cave? Hannibal, Missouri. How do we get in? Uh, we take a paid tour for like 15 bucks. Okay, how do we get into the part with the little girl corpse in the goddamn copper not- tube? Okay, I'm glad you said that. It's not still there. So naturally, the kids... That's comforting. Naturally, the kids can't keep this a secret for very long. Within one month... Yeah, I've seen Stand By Me. I'm aware that kids aren't great with corpse secrets. Within the month, the rest of the adults hear about it, and someone busts that gate off its hinges. Now, the town saw that Mr. McDowell, the owner of the cave, would be thrown out of the town after they noticed that he had put his, you know... Uh, little girl in a, in a tube on the ceiling. Now, here's the thing. They didn't really kick him out for, like, another two years. The rumors kind of went around town, and, like, everybody knew about it. Everybody busted the gate off and went and saw it for themselves. It took two years before enough complaints built up that he was like, I see, I'm not wanted here. And he uh, uh, packed up his daughter. He gave her a proper burial in one of the Cahokia Mounds east of St. Louis. No, no. You know, those mounds that are like Indian burial sites? Yeah, I've traipsed up and down them. I bought a raccoon skin off of one of them. No, she's not buried in there. There is a mausoleum atop one of those. Don't worry, though. We'll we'll get to it. I'm very worried. The tube, I assume, was probably thrown into the river, as mobs do. They do. I can't find a a reliable source for this fact on the whole preservation discussion, but I did read that the central column of the octagonal tower had hooked sections that were intended to hold big copper tubes holding the rest of the McDowell family. Where is this octagonal? Where is this octagonal thing? I mean, first of all, welcome to H.R. Giger's Hogwarts, by the way. Look up, look, this is the McDowell Tower. There's, here's where they all reside in the incubation chambers. Down the hall is the body room. I don't like any of this anymore. I can't attest whether or not that part was true. I believe it at this rate, though. Well, yeah. Instead, instead, with the remains of his family, he relocated. His wife did die before him, unfortunately, while he was still teaching at the college. Um, 
most of his family died before him while he was still teaching at the college, and he had all of them interred in this mausoleum that he built atop one of the uh, burial mound, the Cahokia Mounds east of St. Louis, which he could, quote, often be seen staring from the top of his octagonal tower, <laughs> looking out at them with a telescope. Okay, okay. I need to know where this tower is, because the fact that you keep, you know, referring to it as octagonal makes me curious, because I've lived here for a while, and I feel like I would have seen a giant octagon downtown. Let's talk about the Civil War. I don't want to. When tensions began between the North and South, McDowell made the same choice every American did, and he had to pick a side. Uh, I'll give you two guesses who he joined. The side that makes me feel better about all this? Mm. In an effort to aid the South, McDowell boxed up 1,400 of his school's muskets and prepared to ship them down to the Confederate forces. Why wouldn't he? Fearing federal confiscation, though, McDowell had to find a way to make sure the boxes would reach the South without falling into Union hands. Did he bury them with little girl corpses? So he put a label on them that said polished marble and proceeded to ship 1,400 guns in one giant box all the way to the Confederate Army without anyone opening it. You know, we all say the Patriot Act's a bad thing, but, like, I'm kind of cool <laughs> with them going through my mail if it means we find super, super duper, you know, Confederate guns. <laughs> McDowell followed close behind and joined up with the Rebels as the Surgeon General to the Western Confederate Forces. No, he was not. The, the guy that put his daughter, the guy that Mr. Freezed his daughter was not the Surgeon General of anything. During the war... His school was converted to the Gratio Street Prison as a huge fuck you to McDowell. I mean, I, uh, yeah, cool. The amount of crimes against humanity committed in that prison were beyond what I can describe, but it basically boils down to over 250 people jammed into a 60-foot square room, which was one of the sections of the octagonal tower. I feel like I keep dancing around where the fuck this octagonal tower is, kind of want to go Bastille Day on it. With horrible ventilation, tight quarters and exposure to Missouri's god-awful weather, prisoners at McDowell's College died from disease and exhaustion on a regular basis. Okay, can we just go over the fact how ridiculous the phrase prisoners at McDowell's College is? Hmm. Did you think we'd end up here? No. All the way at the beginning? No. When Union forces took over the college, they took an inventory of McDowell's bizarre possessions. Rummaging through his museum, anatomical collection, and McDowell's personal collection, the college itself actually wasn't thoroughly ransacked. They specifically only inventoried his things. There's very little documentation of the amount of bodies found in the college, but as far as his personal effects, the Union forces cataloged all of his exhibits and turned them over to the Academy of Science in Missouri. While digging through the basement, though, the Union soldiers did note finding nearly two dozen human skeletons and the remain of one bear. That's too many skeletons. And that's too many bears. <laughs> now, Nate, I want to talk just a little, just to wrap this up, um... I want to talk about life after the war for McDowell, because clearly he didn't win. I don't want to talk about this guy at all anymore. McDowell, while he was Surgeon General to the Western Forces of the Confederates, mm -mm. Uh, ran into one Jesse James. No, stop. No. You might be familiar with the fact that Jesse James was a famous robber baron. Uh, oh, that guy? No, I thought we were talking about the tight end for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh -huh. So, Jesse James was notable for pulling off very big heists. A and robber his baron? Yeah. Now, why do I have the phrase robber baron in my head as, like, a night, like, Mr. Monopoly? Like, why is that the image I have? Because I feel like that's right. He was a sharp-dressed gentleman, as far as I understand. But he had a monocle, and he went, man, he wore a top hat, and he took money from poor people. Yes, yes, of course. 
Oh, okay, moving on. He would often, after robberies, hide out in caves. Merrimack 